Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. Today, we, well, later on today, we're going to talk about the Feast of Corpus Christi. And it is uh, one of my absolute favorite liturgies in the traditional Latin Mass uh, for a number of reasons. It's medieval, of course. And the great medieval saint, the universal doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, arranged that liturgy, and composed the incredible sequence uh, known as the Lauda Zion, which is not only an absolutely beautiful hymn, but but just filled with the uh, truth and doctrinal truth about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so we're going to unpack that kind of verse by verse later in the program. Uh, Corpus Christi will be celebrated in the extraordinary form tomorrow, which is the traditional date, uh, in the ordinary form, if you go to the Novus Ordo, uh, it will be up this coming Sunday. And speaking of this coming Sunday, I want to talk about the readings for the extraordinary form Mass for this coming Sunday, which is the second after Pentecost. Beginning with the Epistle, which is taken from 1 John chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Do not be surprised, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brethren. Whoever does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us, and we in turn must be prepared to lay down our lives for our brethren. If anyone is rich in worldly possessions and sees a brother in need but refuses to open his heart, how can the love of God abide in him? Dear children, let us love not in word or speech, but in deed and truth. Like St. James in his epistle, uh, St. John here insists on the value of good works. Love is not a matter of mere lip service. It must be seen and known in actions. Beautiful words are meaningless if they're not accompanied by good deeds. Therefore, the true Christian uh, may be known by the love he has for his neighbor. For just as it belongs to the children of this world, that is, the wicked and the godless, to hate and persecute the man whose life contradicts his own, so, on the other hand, love of neighbor, even to the point of love of enemies, is the mark by which to know whether a man is truly regenerated and translated from death of the, the death of sin to spiritual life. Whoever does not love remains in death and cannot be a child of God who is love. So the hater does not have the life of God in him. On the contrary, St. John says, he is a murderer because his lack of love and his hatred deprive him of spiritual life in this world and eternal life in the next. And now the gospel for the second Sunday after Pentecost from Luke 14, verses 16 through 24. Jesus said in reply, A man gave a sumptuous banquet to which he invited many. When the hour for the banquet drew near, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But one after another they all began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a parcel of land and must go out to inspect it. Please accept my apologies. 
Another said, I have purchased five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Still another said, I have just gotten married, and therefore I am unable to come. When the servant returned, he reported all this to his master. Then the owner of the house became enraged, and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Shortly afterward, the servant told him, Sir, your orders have been carried out, and some room is still available. Then the master said to the servant, Go out to the open roads and along the hedgerows and compel people to come, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. And thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now a quick note on the words, compel people to come. You know, the gospel excludes coercion. What Jesus is saying is that his servants must be emphatic on the need to come to the great feast, to be persuasive, what you might even call proselytizing. Just don't tell Pope Francis. This is the parable of the great feast, also known as the great supper or the great banquet. And since it is a parable, uh, we know that it is an allegorical story. That is, the characters and events are symbolic of other things. So the banquet, for example, represents the kingdom of God on earth, the Catholic Church, in which are deposited all the treasures of grace for the nourishment, the strengthening, and especially the sanctification of our souls. It is a great banquet because all are invited, and the Church is to embrace all peoples of all times. Jesus himself is the one who prepares the banquet by establishing his church. And the servant in the story represents the apostles and their successors, and by extension all Catholics, whom he sends into the whole world to call both the Jews and the Gentiles, everyone without exception. Now to those who were invited first, those who were invited first symbolize the chosen people to whom the coming of the Messiah had been announced beforehand and who were therefore the first called to the church. And each of the excuses has a symbolic meaning as well. The fellow who just bought a parcel of land, that signifies the proud and greedy, uh, who only desire temporal goods. The one who, one who wanted to try his new yoke of oxen represents the, the too busy type, who can't find time to be concerned about God or salvation. And what about the one who said he, he could not come because I have just gotten married. Well, it should not be construed that there's something wrong with marriage. Rather, this one represents the kind of person who is so caught up in sensual pleasures that he or she is oblivious to spiritual joys. Now, since this first group, the ones who had been chosen of old to attend the banquet and exemplified by the scribes and Pharisees, since they refused to come, our Lord sent his servant to bring others in their place, First among them, of course, were those of the chosen people who, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, uh, recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the poor, the blind, and the lame, those whom he preached to and, and whom he healed. Uh, it's well to remember that all of the first converts, including the apostles, were Jews, and with a couple of notable exceptions, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they consisted of the poor and the humble. Uh, as Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson said, it was the man in the street who understood our Lord, and the doctor of the law who was perplexed and offended. <clears throat> then in the next place he calls those Gentiles who were ready to accept the gospel. 
ready to accept the, the good news and who, through the apostles and their successors, have been brought into the Catholic Church from the four corners of the world. Now, of course, there's more to be gleaned from this gospel than we have time for today, but I just want to share one more interesting uh, take on it, the parable of the Great Feast, which is that of St. Gregory the Great, who interprets uh, uh, the parable as referring to the most holy sacrament of the altar, which, of course, we're going to be talking about today. Because the Eucharist is indeed a feast to which all are invited, which offers the fullness of graces and the spiritual gifts, and is therefore fitly called a great feast, but is despised by the three types of people identified in the gospel, namely the sensual, the proud, and the worldly. But according to St. Gregory, to the penitent, the humble, and the loving, the Eucharist conveys innumerable blessings and inestimable benefits. And that's no nonsense. I have to pardon me, I got a little uh, dry spot in my throat here. Uh, Let's see, according to um, preconciliar sermon programs, the second Sunday after Pentecost is also the traditional time to preach about the sins of impurity. And, of course, such preaching is, is certainly needed today when so many influential people are so heavily invested in, in normalizing even the most you know, appalling sins against purity. And it's significant that the, the launching point for this topic is the excuse from the parable, I've just gotten married and therefore am unable to come. By introducing a wedding as an excuse in this parable, pardon me, our Lord points to impurity as a hindrance to entering into the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, this doesn't mean that that the marital act is uh, somehow impure. Far from it. Matrimony is holy. Rather, he's comparing the, 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 shall we say, the enthusiasm of the newlywed for the marriage bed to putting sensual pleasure before salvation. And that's a perennial problem uh, that's perhaps more epidemic in our society than, uh, than at any other time in history. So what is the sin of impurity, properly so-called? Uh, it's the violation of modesty, either in thought or imagination, desire, gestures, words, or dress, and, and of course, in immoral actions. Now, by identifying impurity uh, as one of the three great impediments to the spiritual life, Jesus shows us how detestable and shameful and destructive that vice really is. It makes people so miserable, and it keeps them from the kingdom of God. Hence, the church has traditionally used this gospel as an opportunity to incite us to purity and chastity, whatever our state of life, uh, whether we're single or married or, or celibate. And Father Goffin, in his commentary, reminds us that on account of the sin of impurity, God repented of having created mankind, and he brought the flood upon the earth. You know, it's not an accident, I think, that the diabolically organized forces of impurity today have chosen the rainbow as the symbol of their depravity. You know, the rainbow is God's promise not to destroy the world again uh, with a flood. So employing the symbol of his divine promise to promote this appalling agenda is no less than putting God to the test. And uh, those groups uh, may find out too late that that's not a good idea. All right, coming back with lots more right after this on Virgin Most Powerful. 
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, I was just mentioning before the break that uh, uh, groups that have taken the, you know, groups that are, are kind of organized to, to promote sexual depravity have taken the rainbow as their symbol. And, uh, and of course, that would include the group that's being honored for Pride Night by the Dodgers in, in, a, in about a week and a half from now, 16th of June. Uh, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is actually a, a troop of, of drag queens who mock the uh, Catholic faith and, frankly, the Catholic sisters who have served God so wonderfully over the centuries. Their motto is, go and sin some more, which is obviously a perversion of the words of mercy spoken by our Lord to the woman taken in adultery, which is, go and sin no more. Uh, <clears throat> and um, for, for those of you that are interested, that uh, you can go to the vmpr.org website and have all the details about uh, VMPR's co-sponsoring with some other apostles, LifeSite News, Catholic Vote, and others, a, uh, a procession and a prayers of reparation that's going to start at the cathedral in Los Angeles and go to Dodger Stadium. So if you're interested in participating, you can find out about that. I just say that, you know, that all those, all those rainbow folks might uh, remember only too late the words of the old spiritual, uh, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, but fire next time. St. Paul in Galatians uh, 6, chapter, uh, verses 7 and 8 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For what things a man shall sow, those also shall he reap. For he that soweth in his flesh of the flesh shall reap corruption. Only those who sow in the Spirit will reap everlasting life. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. He cut off the brothers Ur and Onan by sudden death. At the foot of Sinai... He gave nearly the whole tribe of Benjamin to be slain, all because of the sins of impurity, which is making an idol of sins of the flesh. So how do we avoid impurity and encourage our children and grandchildren, who are at the most risk from the, the, you know, the Marxist rainbow alphabet crowd, uh, to do so? Uh, and you know, it's being so ruthlessly promoted to the young as if it were some kind of great good instead of a great evil. Well, traditionally, the Church teaches that the spiritual battle against impurity is not won by direct conflict, but paradoxically, by retreat. In other words, the the strategy for keeping pure is knowing whom and what to avoid. St. Thomas Aquinas said that knowing whom to avoid and what to avoid is a great means of saving our souls, if not the great means of saving our souls. And the first thing to teach them to avoid is idleness. Uh, how many kids spend hours every day idly playing video games or, or mindlessly scrolling the Internet, social media? Now, the old saying goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Just passively allowing hours upon hours of agenda-driven content into your brain is dangerous for anybody, but especially for children. Failing to occupy the body with wholesome pursuits and failing to occupy the mind with wholesome thoughts creates a vacuum that naturally breeds evil thoughts and desires. So that's number one, is keep busy. And the next thing to avoid is bad books, all right? Uh, That's traditionally. Now, in our day, we would have to include social media, the Internet in general, uh, especially the smartphone and what's coming through that. Idle children with 24-hour access to that uh, diabolical rectangle are being methodically exposed to intrinsically evil ideologies and the most wicked and and revolting pornographic imagery imaginable. And they're being exposed at a younger and younger age. 
And, and speaking of age appropriate, they should avoid sensuality in eating and drinking. I'll give you as exhibit A, an entire generation of kids, children, addicted to, to Starbucks. You know, uh, the Starbucks and these other uh, coffee outlets are filling young bodies with substances that are every bit as addictive as nicotine. You know, namely uh, caffeine and, and white sugar, not to mention high levels of saturated fat and, and hundreds of empty calories consumed every single day. You know, I, I once saw a, a meme of an adolescent girl holding one of those iced coffee drinks all full of chocolate syrup and, and topped with whipped cream with the, the caption, I love coffee. And someone had commented, you don't love coffee, you love milkshakes. <laughs> but my point is that milkshakes are a treat. They're not something that should be a steady diet, much less an addiction. You know, I was not allowed to drink coffee at all as an adolescent because my mother said it would stunt my growth. Well, today's children are in genuine danger of stunting their spiritual growth. If they're not taught to practice some discipline, which includes periodically giving up even what's permitted in order to be, you know, uh, more readily, to be able to more readily avoid that which is forbidden, how will they ever be able to discern between Augustine's maxim, which is love and do what thou wilt, and the modern satanic counterfeit, which is do what you will, will be the whole of the law? You know, as, as the perpetual sin, sins of, sisters of perpetual indulgence, quote-unquote, put it, go and sin some more. Now, the next thing to be avoided in order to maintain Christian purity is bad company. And <clears throat> perhaps the, the number one conduit of today's evil uh, ideological agenda outside of the, the, the smartphone is public schools. I mean, have, have you seen the National Public School Report card lately? Uh, there's no academic category in which even half of public school students are proficient. Only 24% of American 12th graders, American high school seniors, only 24% are proficient in math. Only a third are proficient in reading. Uh, and, and, and only 12% of those high school seniors have an understanding of American history. And understand, this is by today's, frankly, dumbed-down standards. You know, and, and unfortunately, these, these abysmal outcomes are, are, are nothing new. Public schools have been failing America's youth for decades. But they're not just dumbing down the next generation. They're systematically brainwashing students with harmful ideologies. Public education uh, has been instrumental in producing an increasing number of amoral, anti-Christian, and uh, uh, socialist-minded adults. Recent polls, I think it was 2019, showed that one in three millennials favor communism, and as many as 70% would vote for a socialist candidate in the next election. And of course, now the federal government is, is pushing public schools to teach Racism, ironically, under the, uh, the pretext of anti-racism. I mean, I did a whole show uh, on critical race theory, you know, which is trying to transform the nation's schools into sites of overt Marxist conflict, pitting whites against minorities and the wealthy against the poor and the, the heteronormative uh, versus the gay and transgendered. And our so-called Catholic president has committed billions of dollars uh, for public schools uh, uh, willing to create new ways of incorporating critical race theory into their classrooms. Incorporating? I'm sorry. Incorporating critical race theory into their classrooms. Um, Miguel Cardona, our Secretary of uh, Education, is gathering support to override uh, current curricular programs and force 
critical race theory initiatives. And private schools, many of uh, which accept government money, uh, are often no better. You know, I remember around the turn of the century when our oldest was in Catholic school. Uh, he was in the third grade. He came home one day <clears throat> and announced that his teacher planned to read the first Harry Potter book out loud in class and then uh, later on to show the movie. Now, nothing was sent home to tell the parents that this was the plan. I just heard it from my own kid. So I arranged to have a chat with his teacher. And I raised my concerns and was told that it, in no uncertain terms, it was none of my business. Uh, and so we pulled them out of school and started homeschooling. And over the intervening 20-plus years, we homeschooled all of our children, the youngest of whom will be a senior next year. Now, did I really go through all of that just because of Harry Potter? Well, as you may know, I'm, I'm a convert from, uh, from New Age and occult beliefs and practices. And I, I, you know, I did a tape series for St. Joseph Communications back in the day called The Trouble with Harry uh, about the concerns that I and others had with, uh, with the books. Uh, and there's way too much to go into here. But needless to say, I sounded the alarm that the normalization, even celebration of witchcraft in these children's fantasy books was a gateway into other problems. And, and I took a lot of flack for it. And I remember being interviewed on EWTN radio, and I pointed out that witchcraft is one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance. So I said, you know, if you say it's okay for children to read fantasies about good people who practice witchcraft, you know, it has books that have witchcraft as their central theme, then, then what about those other sins? Uh, sodomy is one of those sins. So I asked rhetorically, would you be be okay with your children reading fantasy books that glorified good people who were also practicing homosexuals or put the practice of sodomy front and center the way Harry Potter does with witchcraft. Well, that prompted a phone call from a self-identified gay man who was offended by my quote-unquote anti-gay remarks. And I explained that I didn't hate gay people, uh, but asked him if he could understand why, as a Catholic parent, I would consider it inappropriate for a Catholic school to expose my children to a homosexual fantasy book. And, you know, he actually, I mean, he understood the point and admitted it makes sense. He even thanked me for explaining it to him. Now, some 20-plus years later, I don't know um, if a similar conversation might not go quite differently. And that's the point. See, my kid's school was seduced into using the Harry Potter books, uh, you know, in the classroom, because the U.S. publisher, Scholastic Books, provided the schools with all sorts of free classroom materials, all based around Harry Potter's world, right? So why bother with creating your own reading syllabus when one has been created for you that use, uh, utilizes the world's most popular children's book, you know, at the time? Uh, you know, and, and I remember, hey, at least the kids are reading. That's what everybody was saying back at the time. My boy's teacher saw no problem with it all. So was I just a, a chicken little? Well, today, those same classrooms that saw no problem with introducing kids to Harry Potter now see no problem with introducing kids to all sorts of materials that celebrate that other sin that cries to heaven for vengeance. Some public schools are now openly teaching transgender ideologies and encouraging very young children far below the age of consent to be mutilated in the name of transitioning to the gender that they quote-unquote identify with even if their parents object. Uh, I recently heard about yet another teacher who was fired for not agreeing to use a child's preferred pronouns without informing the parents. In other words, she wasn't 
averse to using the pronoun. She just thought the parents should be told. And she lost her job because she believed that a little girl's parents deserved to know that their daughter didn't want to be a she anymore. Now, I ask you, who would have believed such a thing even possible back when I was sounding the alarm over Harry Potter? You know, hey, if this keeps up, sooner or later, elementary schools are going to be encouraging little kids to have sex change operations without their parents' knowledge or consent. I would have been laughed to scorn for making such an outlandish suggestion. And yet, here we are. And so we made the decision to homeschool our six kids uh, and never regretted it. I mean, they're, they're all grown now. I'm blessed to say that they all remain practicing Catholics. Okay, we'll be back uh, in just a few minutes with uh, some more ways to help your kids to avoid the things that uh, are triggers for the sins of impurity when we come back. And also going to talk about Corpus Christi and the incomparable sequence of Thomas Aquinas Loud as Zion, when we return with lots more right after this. <clears throat> All right, back with uh, a couple more ways to help your kids avoid sins of impurity. Uh, one thing is to teach them to keep good custody of their eyes, right? Don't be watching shows that are filled with content. You know, obviously anything pornographic is right off the table. And, and, and encourage them to be self-disciplined, to abstain sometimes from lawful things so that they be, uh, may more readily give up those things which are unlawful. And then finally, encourage them uh, to go to church. Make sure they go to Mass every Sunday, uh, go to confession regularly, go to communion often to combat every occasion because those occasions are going to come up no matter how hard you try to avoid them uh but, but without what they used to call making terms okay uh that is you don't surrender any ground or make any compromises with sins of impurity all right you don't make any deals uh with the devil you teach your children to call on god for help and they will carry off the victory and become worthy followers of the lamb and that's no nonsense all right, tomorrow in the traditional calendar is the Feast of Corpus Christi. And so I'd like to share a, a little history about where it came from and what it's about. Feast of Corpus Christi was instituted by Pope Urban IV in the year of our Lord 1264, so in the 13th century. But the inspiration for the feast um, actually came about through a religious sister of Liege, who our Lord himself appeared to her and asked for the feast. Naturally, the the church already celebrated the institution of the Holy Eucharist on Holy Thursday, Monday Thursday, um, which is the anniversary of the Last Supper. But this new feast was to have a different emphasis because it came at a time not unlike our own, where there was confusion about the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so the feast was celebrated locally uh, from the year 1247. And then in the year 1311, Pope Clement V fixed the date for the feast as the Thursday following Trinity Sunday. And, uh, you know, once upon a time, Corpus Christi was a holy day of obligation. And it was traditional for there to be Eucharistic processions on that day. Now, it has since been moved to Sunday in the Novus Ordo. Um, and, you know, our procession typically has a, a procession 
on the Feast of Corpus Christi. Now this year, um, our priests, we're not going to have one on Thursday or Sunday because our priests, uh, you know, the, the, the feast fell this year during their annual retreat. So they're, they're simply just not here to do it. Uh, and so they have, our pastors decided to do it on the 1st of July. So why July 1st? You know, you look at the Novus Ordo calendar, and, and 1 July is just the umpteenth Monday in ordinary time. But in the traditional calendar, it's the Feast of the Precious Blood of Jesus. See, so it's connected, that Eucharistic connection is there. So we're, so we're going to have our procession. It's just going to be on the 1st of July. Now, you know, what, what, what's the Feast of Corpus Christi and the annual processions? What's it all about? Well, number one is to declare openly and publicly uh, to the faithful and to the world the Church's belief in the real and substantial presence of Jesus in the Holy Sacrament of the altar. Right? And at a time where something like 70% of practicing Catholics don't believe in the real presence, it's, you know, pretty important. It is, it is a witness. That's number one. Number two, in order to demonstrate in the sight of heaven and earth the honor and adoration that we owe to him before whom the scripture says every knee shall bow. Number three is to give public thanks for the institution of the Holy Sacrament. Jesus didn't have to institute the Holy Eucharist, you know. It's a privilege, it's not a right. All the graces that are conferred upon the faithful, it's a, it's a gift. And those graces are especially needed uh, in our own time when so many Catholics, and not to mention non-Catholics, don't understand that the graces won by Christ on the Holy Cross are communicated to the world precisely through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Uh, number four is for reparation. Through our solemn adoration to make up for, in some degree, the wrongs done to Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, especially for sacrilegious communions. And there must be so many in, in, a, in a church where, where so many practicing Catholics routinely, and I use that term advisedly, routinely receive communion, but don't believe in the real presence. Much to make reparation for. Uh, number five, to bring down God's blessing on our church and on our country and on our people. And we need that. Number six, to show that Jesus as true God is not only present in the church, in, in temples built by hands, as the Bible would have it, but that he has heaven for his throne and the earth for his footstool, and that he has the hearts of all the faithful around the world who receive him worthily in Holy Communion for his temple. Now, when the Pope instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi back in the 1300s, he needed to have a Mass and an office composed for its celebration. And so the Church called upon the two greatest theologians of the day, or any day for that matter, um, the great Franciscan doctor of the church, St. Bonaventure, and the universal doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, both of these great doctors were called upon to compose a mass and office for the feast. And according to uh, the legend, you know, the tradition with a small t, when Bonaventure heard Aquinas' mass for the feast, he simply tore up his own composition. And the reason, specifically, was the sequence that St. Thomas composed for the Feast of Corpus Christi called Lauda Zion. Now, a sequence is like a hymn, and, and there were thousands of sequences composed during the Age of Faith, that is, say, during the Middle Ages. Um, in the Novus Ordo, uh, I am sorry to say that the Lauda Zion is only one of five sequences still used today. Uh, 
but it is at once a comprehensive presentation of the Church's doctrine on the Eucharist, and at the same time one of the most beautiful hymns, beautiful poem. And it's an example of how so much more can be communicated by a few words in the language of poetry than by, you know, hundreds of words uh, in, you know, the most comprehensive prose. And the Lauda Zion speaks directly to the heart. So I, I want to share uh, with you what made a great saint and doctor like St. Bonaventure tear up his own work. The more so because if you exist at the ordinary form of the Mass this Sunday, you probably won't hear it, at least not in its entirety. If they use the sequence, they will almost certainly use the abbreviated version. And if that's the case, I'm going to remedy that right now. Uh, <laughs> also on the way, we will look at some of the differences between the traditional Mass of Corpus Christi and the revision made after Vatican II, if time permits. Now, before we begin, I'd like to say that I'm going to be reading, thankfully, from the English translation from the Novus Ordo Missal. And thanks to the correction of the translation that was introduced back in 2011, you know, under Pope Benedict XVI, the new translation really manages to capture much of the beauty of the Latin original, unlike the, the 1970 translation. So uh, we'll start with the, the very first stanzas, which uh, serve as an introduction. Laud, O Zion, your salvation. Laud with hymns of exultation, Christ, your King and Shepherd true. For Aquinas, Zion is the church. It's the, the new Israel. And the word laud in Latin means praise. So this little introduction begins with a call to praise Christ, our heavenly King and Good Shepherd. Bring him all the praise you know. He is more than you bestow. Never can you reach his due. So we should praise Christ with all of our strength, with all of our hearts, because he has given us and gives us so much more than we can ever repay, so much more than we can ever return. And th that teaches us that it is impossible to give Jesus too much praise because it's impossible to praise him enough. Special theme for glad thanksgiving is the quickening and the living bread today before you set. The special theme of the Mass. The, the Eucharist means thanksgiving. And the special theme for this Mass, this Eucharist, is the real presence. You know, uh, speaking of the Blessed Sacrament. The special theme for this Mass is the quickening and the living bread. Quickening means to give life, uh, particularly the life of the Spirit and uh, the, the eternal life, which Jesus, the living bread, promised to all who would eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now Aquinas turns to the institution of the sacrament. He says, From his hands of old partaken, as we know by faith unshaken, where the twelve at supper met. So now we recall that the first Holy Eucharist was uh, celebrated by Jesus himself. And, and the apostles were the very first to receive from his holy and venerable hands his body and blood in holy communion there at the Last Supper in the upper room. Uh, full and clear ring out your chanting. Join or sweetest grace be wanting. From your heart let praises burst. For today the feast is holden when the institution olden of that supper was rehearsed. So Corpus Christi, as I said, originally celebrated 
and still in the extraordinary form, celebrated on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday, because it's a special memorial of the institution of the Eucharist on the Last Supper, which was on a Thursday. But unlike Maundy Thursday, right, Holy Thursday, where the emphasis is on the Passion, the emphasis of the new feast is on the many benefits that we derive from the presence of Christ in the sacrament. He goes on, Here the new law's new oblation, by the new king's revelation, ends the form of ancient rite. Jesus is the son of David. He is the new and eternal king. And so from the Last Supper onward, the followers of Christ would no longer celebrate the Passover. They would no longer offer the blood of of sheep and bullocks in the temple. They will worship God in spirit and truth by celebrating the Holy Mass, which makes present for us the once-for-all sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. And then Aquinas continues, Now the new, the old effaces. Truth away the shadow chases. Light dispels the gloom of night. Now this refers to the fact that the sacrifices of the old law were only types and figures that foreshadowed the fulfillment in, in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and its celebration in Holy Mass. For while the old sacrifices were pleasing to God, they could not restore the relationship broken with him by the sins of man. Only the sacrifice of the Christ, the light of the world, can redeem mankind and make it possible to leave the darkness of sin and enter the light of the state of grace. That's No Nonsense. Back with more right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back uh, to No Nonsense Catholic. You're going to hit the ground running on this because there's quite a bit more of this, and I really want to try and complete it today. Uh, continuing with the Lauda Zion. What he did at supper seated, Christ ordained to be repeated, his memorial ne'er to cease. So this is the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi, that from the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place there is offered sacrifice, offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on Calvary means that there will be no more need for animal sacrifices, but the one true sacrifice that he himself made sacramentally present at the Last Supper, this clean oblation will continue to be made present in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, which he commanded be celebrated until the end of time. And his rule for guidance-taking. Bread and wine we hallow, making thus our sacrifice of peace. Simply put, at the consecration, the priest does what Jesus did. Fills the command, uh, do this as a commemoration of me. And now St. Thomas turns to the transubstantiation. This the truth each Christian learns. Bread into his flesh he turns. To his precious blood the wine. In a nutshell, that's the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the substance of bread and wine become truly the body and blood of Christ. It's the great truth that Aquinas says every Christian learns. Unfortunately, uh, due to you know decades of poor catechesis, and in no small measure, in my opinion, the arrangement of the uh, new order of the Mass, this great truth is not believed by too many Christians, and even Catholic ones. But for those who do accept the reality of the Holy Eucharist, Aquinas says, Sight has failed. 
nor thought conceives, but a dauntless faith believes, resting on a power divine. Catholics believe in the doctrine of the real presence, that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is substantially present in the Eucharist under the appearance of bread and wine. Now, we cannot fully understand this because it is above human reason. It's a supernatural mystery. Yet we believe. We take Christ at his word because it is the word of God. Here beneath these signs are hidden priceless things to sense forbidden. Signs, not things, are all we see. So here, St. Thomas points out that while the substance of the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, the accidents remain. To our senses, the, the Eucharist looks and smells and tastes and feels like bread and wine. But by faith, we know that the substance has really changed into his body and blood. And he continues, Blood is poured and flesh is broken. Yet in either wondrous token, Christ entire we know to be. Whoso of this food partakes does not rend the Lord nor breaks. Christ is whole to all that taste. So this is the profound truth that Christ is present, whole and entire, body, blood, soul, and divinity, even in the smallest particle of the host or, or the, the, the single drop from the chalice. Thousands are as one receivers, one as thousands of believers, each of him who cannot waste. We're all one body, united in holy communion with Christ who is eternal. This is a beautiful and consoling truth. And it's one that Aquinas places here because he's about to share another important, but I fear these days too often neglected truth. Bad and good the feast are sharing. Of what diverse dooms preparing, endless death or endless life. Life to these, to those damnation. See how like participation is with unlike issues rife. Jesus said, I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, etc. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him on the last day. But as we read in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, or as St. Thomas would have it, damnation. How can this be? I, well, remember the parable of the weeds and the wheat. God allows the good and the bad to remain in his church. The farmer does not uproot the weeds in order to avoid uprooting the wheat as well. However, at the harvest, he separates the weeds and the wheat. And likewise, our Lord will separate the sheep from the goats on the last day when the wheat will be gathered into barns and the weeds bundled together to be burned. Also, I might point out one of the issues that I have with the New Order of the Mass is that verse from St. Paul. This, uh, this uh, epistle is read at the feast of Corpus Christi, but that verse is removed about eating and drinking judgment on yourself. I, you know, I, I, I'm in sales, not in management, but I think that was a prudential error. Okay, when sacrament... When the sacrament is broken, doubt not, but believe tis spoken, that each severed outward token doth the very whole contain. Not the precious gift divides, breaking but the sign betides. Jesus still the same abides, still unbroken doth remain. 
So here, St. Thomas, the, the church's greatest theologian, greatest catechist, greatest apologist, answers the questions. If both the holst and chalice contain the body, blood, soul, and divinity, why does the priest consecrate the bread and wine separately? Why does the priest break the host uh, after the consecration? Well, the separate consecrations represent how Jesus' body and blood were separated when he shed uh, all of his precious blood on the Holy Cross. The breaking of the host in communion is done in remembrance of Jesus breaking the bread at the Last Supper to give communion to his apostles. Also, when the priest breaks the host, he places a little particle in the chalice. Why? Because just as the separate consecration of the bread and wine signifies our Lord's death, the reunion of the particle of the host in the chalice is significant of his resurrection. St. Thomas points out that despite the symbolism of the separate consecrations and the breaking of the consecrated host, Jesus continues to be present whole and entire in every particle of host and chalice. Now, this is quite the profound theological dissertation contained within an absolutely beautiful hymn. And I wish the people at, you know, Oregon Catholic Press would, would take some notes that it is entirely possible to compose a beautiful hymn that's also theologically accurate. But I digress. And unfortunately, and I'm sorry to say that I suspect most Catholics assisting at the ordinary form of the Mass will not hear this part of the sequence. Because after Vatican II, the first two-thirds of the Lauda Zion, with all of that rich theological content we just went through, was made optional for the new Mass. And the shorter form of the sequence only begins with the next verse. Lo, the angel's food is given to the pilgrim who has striven. See the children's bread from heaven, which on dogs may not be spent. It's a reference to Christ's words that Christ's words that the one who perseveres to the end will be saved, and his words to the Canaanite woman who asked him to heal her daughter when he said, let the children first be filled. You know, you do not give the children's food to the dogs. Hence, St. Thomas is saying that Holy Communion is only for those who are united in faith as members of the body in Christ in the Catholic Church, and further, for those who have striven, quote-unquote, that is, who are in a state of grace and are well disposed to receive. You know, just being a Catholic isn't, uh, isn't sufficient. You have to be in a state of grace. On the next verse, he mentions how the Blessed Sacrament fulfills the Old Testament types of our Lord's bloody sacrifice on the cross and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Truth, the ancient types fulfilling, Isaac bound, a victim willing, Paschal lamb, its lifeblood spilling, manna to the Father sent. So the sacrifice of Isaac, the Passover, the manna in the desert, the miraculous bread from heaven given to the chosen people, all are fulfilled in the Holy Eucharist. And now this uh, amazing prayer addresses Christ directly. Very bread, good shepherd, tend us. Jesus, of your love, befriend us. You refresh us. You defend us. Your eternal goodness send us in the land of life to see. See, here St. Thomas calls upon Jesus for all his many blessings, you know, uh, and, and visible signal graces that we so need in this life. Invoking him as the true bread from heaven, our good shepherd and our best friend. And if you ever doubt that Jesus is your best friend, recall his words in Scripture. I no longer call you servants, but friends. And no one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends, which he did for you and for me. Finally, the angelic doctor begs God, who is almighty and all-knowing, 
to grant us the grace to join with the saints in the heavenly banquet by receiving him in communion in this life and joining him at the eternal banquet in the next with these words. You who all things can and know, who on earth such food bestow, grant us with your saints, though lowest, where the heavenly feast you show, fellow heirs and guests to be. Amen. Hallelujah. And there it is. That's so, I, you know, to, to, it's, all, it's almost a shame. I wish I, I wish I had the time to go through that word by word and, and just take the time to, to uh, contemplate it. Now, that's not good for a podcast, but it is really good for prayer. And I suggest you uh, get your missile out or you can go to the uh, U.S. Bishop's website, go to the Corpus Christi readings, find the Lauda Zion, and, uh, and sometime this week or this weekend, make it your contemplation. Spend time with what the angelic doctor said, the universal doctor, said about the Holy Eucharist. It, it, it's so beautiful and, and it's so impactful because it's simply so true. And that's no nonsense. All right, uh, just a couple of minutes left. I do want to remind you that uh, there is a procession and prayers of reparation to be offered for the, the Dodgers hosting the blasphemous quote-unquote, sisters of perpetual indulgence, whose motto is go and sin some more at uh, their pride event at Dodger Stadium. So on the 16th, uh, around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they're going to gather at uh, the cathedral in Los Angeles and and process to Dodger Stadium. Bishop Strickland is is flying out. Johnny and Jesse Romero will be there. Other people, I don't know who all will be uh, speaking or addressing the crowd, but prayers will be offered, prayers of reparation that are so needed. And then the very next day, the 17th of June is coming up. It's uh, just uh, not this weekend, but the next is our annual men's conference. Still some seats open. You know, you want to get them now. You can you can get a seat at the door if it if it doesn't sell out in the next couple of weeks, but it's more expensive to, you know, uh, to buy a ticket at the door this year than it will be to make a, uh, a reservation. So I suggest you do that. Just go to vmpr.org and make your reservation now. Find out all the information for the other things that are going on, including the procession of reparation. And uh, until next time, I just want to take a moment and say thank you so much. I, uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be able to do this every week, to, to talk about these various things in the church, share them with you. Uh, it is a, a great blessing in my life. I hope it is in yours as well. And uh, until next time, I want to say thank you so very much for your prayers, your support of VMPR. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.